It began with an attack by Japan upon naval and air bases in Hawaii. America went to war. We could never have won if we did not understand what our mission was and where it must go. Years later, that mission and its purpose was accomplished. When God the Trinity decided to create the universe and all that it contains, he also had a goal. I have taught that goal before in other videos. I'd like to repeat it to explain that God's purpose for history prior to the new heavens and earth is to see his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, rule as king upon the earth. Now, there's much confusion in churches today as to whether Christ is now a king reigning in heaven on the throne of David or whether he will be king on the earth on the throne of David in Israel. This confusion is allowing many false movements to develop within Christian circles and causing significant divisions. We need to settle in our minds, when will Christ be king? When Christ is king can be determined by beginning a study of the scriptures. Join me now by turning to Matthew 19. In verse 1 we see the Lord is speaking in Judea. He's addressed his message to his disciples, also to the multitudes in verse 2, and the Pharisees of verse 3. Now, as we move down to verse 16, we find a rich young man approached Jesus the Messiah with a question. He said, And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? This is a question each one of us either has asked, or in the past, or should be asking now. The Lord responded to him in a very personal way by pointing out what stood between this rich man and eternal life in the kingdom in verse 21. Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Sadly, the rich young man turned away, refusing to eliminate his obstacle. The Lord then turned to his disciples in verse 23, and he said, Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom. Notice carefully the context. The man's question concerned eternal life, and the Lord indicated that eternal life was linked to life in the kingdom. Upon hearing the Lord's response, his disciples wondered, how could anyone enter this kingdom? Were their own efforts in vain? Notice what they asked in verse 25. Who then can be saved? But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. As they absorbed his words, Peter speaks up, as he so often does in verse 27. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we've forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? You see, they had forsaken all for him, and now they sought a reward, a place in the Lord's earthly kingdom. 
that their minds were on an earthly kingdom is very evident both from this text that we're looking in chapter 19, but also from their disputes over their rank in the kingdom that was recorded by Matthew in the very next chapter in chapter 20, verses 20 to 21 and 24. Two of the disciples, the mother of two of the disciples, wanted to know what was their son's rank going to be. Would it be something special? And then in verse 24, the other ten disciples also are angry because they were thinking the same thing. And the answer that Christ gives refers to one that is on the left and right hand of the position of the king. But they aren't kings. They're merely, that's a rank in the kingdom under the king. Notice very carefully the Lord's answer. Keeping in mind that the disciples believed in an earthly kingdom, not just a spiritual, unseen, inward kingdom. So back in chapter 19, verse 28, the Lord gives his answer. Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. You see, Jesus Christ's reply to his disciples answers two important questions for them and for us. In answering these two questions, Christ corrects a serious misunderstanding among Christians today. That misunderstanding has resulted in church splits, anti-Semitism, and numerous conflicts. All could be prevented from a biblical understanding. That understanding can be found in this reply. For we understand the mission that Christ has. He is to reclaim earth's kingdom for God and be its final king. Secondly, our question now becomes, when will that happen? Turning back to Matthew 19, verse 28, we see that the first element, Christ's kingdom, will result in regeneration. <laughs> what does regeneration mean? Well, this word is merely made up of two Greek words. The first is the palin, meaning again. Specifically, the idea of a repetition of action, such as the movement of an oscillating fan back and forth, a repetition of its action. The second word you'll know right away is Genesis. What does that word mean to you? It is the word for beginning. Did you know that you can speak Greek? Putting the two words together, we get Genesis again, or repeating of the beginning, or Genesis. The classical Greek writers used the word in reference to the changes produced by the return of spring, the seasonal beginning again. This word is used only one other time in our Bible, this word regeneration, and that is in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, where we read, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. In this verse, Paul is saying that the washing of regeneration saves us, or if you will, will Genesis us again, <laughs> or we'll go back to our beginning, for we will be born again spiritually, 
as it's used in John chapter 3. The concept is that you are spiritually restored or will be restored to the original state that God planned for you when you are regenerated by receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior. That state was to be restored to a righteous fellowship with God, the same state in which Adam and Eve had with God in the garden before their fall. You see, it's the beginning again. It's to be taking us back in our mind to realize what did they have before they fell. When we are regenerated, we are restored to a relationship with God just like they could have had way back then. In Judaism, the word regeneration has connotations of the messianic age, an existence in righteousness following the last judgment. Now, because there are only two uses of regeneration in the Bible, we need to search further to help us understand the regeneration the Lord was speaking of in Matthew 19. So let's turn to Acts and we'll look at the coming restored kingdom. In Acts chapter 1, we see the disciples returning to this question of when is this regeneration? In verse 3, Dr. Luke tells us the subject of the Lord's teaching following his resurrection. He tells us, To whom also he, that's Jesus Christ, showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days. And notice what he's speaking of. Speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. That was during those forty days. Speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now recall how important the kingdom was to them. They had forsaken all. They had seen the Lord crucified. And the payment of their sins, yes, was accomplished. They certainly knew that that was the purpose of his first coming. You may recall that when an angel of the Lord came to Joseph in a dream, the angel said in Matthew 1.21, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now back in Acts chapter 1 verse 3, the disciples, knowing that the Lamb Messiah had brought salvation through the cross, now were wondering when the Lord would assume that earthly role as King Messiah, spoken by the prophets. Thus in verse 6 they ask, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again thy kingdom to Israel? This is after those 40 days. Well, first of all, we observe that their question indicated that the disciples did not believe the Lord's kingdom had yet begun. For they asked, Wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom? Secondly, we notice the kingdom they are talking about is related to the nation of Israel. Thirdly, their use of the word restore takes us back to the idea of regeneration, of turning back again to the beginning. Fourthly, notice the word again. This would seem to point back to a previous kingdom. So they weren't thinking of a totally new and unique spiritual kingdom. They were thinking of the kingdom that they knew when Israel once was a kingdom under David and Solomon. 
Look closely at that phrase, restore again. Its meaning is very similar to regeneration. It means to return to the former state. Our understanding of restoration is made easier by recalling an incident back in Matthew 12, which occurred on a Sabbath in the local synagogue. So turn back to Matthew 12 and verse 10, and we're going to see an example of physical restoration. At the time, the Pharisees were seeking to trap the Lord so that they might accuse him, it says in the passage. Pointing to a man with a withered hand, they asked the Lord, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? After giving them his teaching in verses 11 and 12, the Lord speaks to the man with the withered hand in verse 13, and he says, Stretch forth thine hand, and he stretched it forth, and it was restored whole, how? Like as the other. This was no academic discussion between the Lord and the Pharisees, but rather a very practical ministry applied to the doctrine. Notice what happened. He was healed, but of even greater significance, his arm was restored completely like the other. How was the other? Well, it had developed normally ever since his birth. Thus, the restored arm was just as if it had developed through the years in a normal way and no suggestion of the disease. Thus, restoration means to return to back to its original intended state. The original intended state. The state God wants us to be in. From both this illustration of a physical restoration added to what we have learned earlier, we can conclude that there can be a spiritual and physical restoration or regeneration. Thus, in Titus 3.5 is the idea of a spiritual restoration to God as it was originally intended. And our passage in Matthew 19 verse 28 is the idea of a physical restoration of the earth as it was originally intended. So we have both in, in regeneration the idea of spiritual restoration and physical restoration. The risen Messiah is saying that in the regeneration slash restoration, he would bring back the original kingdom. He will exercise his rule upon his throne as it was originally intended by God. Think about this for a minute. Certainly heaven does not need a restoration. Thus, it must be speaking of an earthly kingdom, a restored earth to its original state physically and spiritually as God intended it to be from the beginning. Truly, just as the Lord said in Matthew 19, spiritual and physical restoration is impossible for man, but it is possible for God. Do you see? God's not promising merely a spiritual invisible kingdom in our hearts and an eternal life, but much, much more. That leads us to a very serious question. When is this regeneration back to what he originally planned? 
Now that we know what regeneration will do, we, with the disciples, want to know when. I mean, it's been 2,000 years since they asked. Well, a hint of when is given to three of the disciples at the end of Matthew 16. As we look at Matthew 16, verse 21, we find that Jesus indicated that he must first go to Jerusalem to be tried, to be crucified, to rise from the dead on the third day, according to the scriptures as spoken by the prophets. For he was to be the Lamb, Messiah, sacrificed for our sins. Typically, Peter resisted the idea of the Lord's death and spoke up in verse 22. The Lord then responded by indicating that death is not the end in verse 28, for he says, Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Just six days later after saying that, Three of those standing there, Peter, James, and John, went up with the Lord to the mountain, and what they saw changed their lives forever. Look in Matthew chapter 17, verse 2. And he, that's Christ, was transfigured before them. His face did shine as the sun, his raiment was white as the light. Now they saw the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This event, which we call the Transfiguration, allowed the three to see a preview of Jesus Christ in his true glory as King Messiah. They also were allowed to see two famous Bible heroes, Moses and Elijah. The presence of Moses and Elijah was very significant. 400 years earlier, the prophet Malachi in chapter 4 had given Israel an indicator of the time of the restoration and he linked it to both Moses and Elijah. For Malachi 4 verse 4 says, Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments? Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Notice what was spoken by the prophet Malachi. Elijah would come back to earth just before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now Malachi was speaking of the second coming of the Messiah. This time he will be coming as King Messiah, the Lord of hosts, and bringing judgment upon the earth. Turning back to Matthew 17, Right after Peter gets so excited that the kingdom has come, a voice is heard from heaven. God the Father speaks in verse 5, in fact, only one of three times in the Gospels does the Father speak. And he says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. This is the official declaration that Jesus Christ is the authorized ruler of the coming kingdom. Now, after warning them not to tell anyone of this until he was raised from the dead, the disciples started to think of that which was spoken of by the prophets. Based upon what they had just heard, they expected the kingdom to come right after the resurrection, but this caused them confusion. So they asked the Lord in verse 10, Why then say the scribes that Elijah must come first? 
And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elijah truly shall first come and restore, there's our word again, all things as before. Now that's a literal translation from the Greek. To restore all things as before. Notice it's the future tense. Shall come sometime after the resurrection and before the second coming of the Lord, Elijah will come. During the tribulation period, which by the way will take place after the removal of the church from earth, Elijah will come back. And after that shall all be restored as before. But as before what? This takes us back to God's kingdom in the Garden of Eden, when sinless Adam, the first ruler of the earthly realm, when he was to have dominion and was to exercise his rule by replenishing the earth, filling the earth. Sadly, Satan came in and usurped the kingdom, substituting sinful men as rulers in the realm of the earth and exercising his rule by trying to unite the people against God. The first rebellious kingdom named in the Bible was the Tower of Babel. Many interim kingdoms have followed, but one day, one day, God will send the King Messiah, Jesus Christ, the last Adam, to restore the rightful earthly kingdom. In other words, the millennium will be a restoration of the garden containing regenerated Jewish and Gentile peoples, a unique group of people who chose of their own free will to be there with their God and Savior. Thus, the restoration will be God's final kingdom on this earth following the tribulation. The Bible calls this coming kingdom the millennial kingdom. Now, when will Jesus Christ be seated upon his throne? Let's look at the Lord's second statement in Matthew 19.28, which says that God's earthly kingdom will come when, notice the word when, the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory. Where is he seated right now? Well, Hebrews 8.1 says, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest that's Jesus Christ, who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Notice he's set at the right hand of the throne of the Father, that's the majesty, in heaven. Jesus Christ today is in heaven, seated, according to Romans 8.34, as who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Where did Stephen the martyr see him at the time of his martyrdom? Well, Acts 7.55 says, But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. That would be the right hand of God the Father. And said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. The scriptures clearly indicate that Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God the Father's throne in heaven today, and there he is an intercessory priest for us. Now be careful. 
Notice it never says he is seated on his throne or on a throne. Rather, he is at the right hand of God the Father. This is very important. Turning to Acts chapter 2 and verse 30, let's see where Christ's throne will be. In verse 30, Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, that's to David's uh, speaking to an oath given to David, sworn with an oath to David that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his, that's David's, throne. In this verse, Peter tells us that God had raised or resurrected the Messiah to sit on his throne. Let's be clear, whose throne his refers to. We look in verse 29. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriot David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulchre is with us unto this day. And then it says, knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. Notice that all the references to him and his refer back to King David and to the oath which we call the Davidic covenant given by God to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. For time's sake, I'll summarize that passage. We are told in verse 12, David will have a child yet to be born who would succeed him and establish his kingdom forever. In verse 13, this son, Solomon, would build the temple instead of David. Again in verse 13, the throne of his kingdom, Solomon's, will be established forever. Verse 14, the throne would not be taken away from Solomon, even though his sins justify God's discipline. Therefore, the promise of a throne and kingdom are unconditional. They're not dependent on the behavior of Solomon. In verse 16, David's house that's all his that's his descendants his throne and his kingdom will be established forever keeping this promise in mind now we go to Luke 1 verses 31 to 33 here the angel Gabriel identified the one who would sit upon that throne forever and behold Thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great. He shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Gabriel spoke that. Of Jesus. First of all, significantly, Jesus of Nazareth is the son of the highest, in contrast to Satan's usurped role as wanting to be like the Most High in Isaiah 14, 14. Jesus Christ is no usurper, seeking to mimic God as Satan was. Jesus Christ is God himself, 
who by his death and resurrection qualified him as the last Adam to be the rightful ruler of the earthly realm. His first mission at the end of the tribulation will be to defeat the Antichrist. Second, the throne of his father David is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant and proves God's trustworthiness. Incidentally, in the Bible, the term throne of David always refers to a throne in Jerusalem, a physical throne. Thus, the Messiah must return to the physical Jerusalem to take up the throne of David to fulfill this covenant and to prove that God keeps his word. That brings us to a very relevant question in today's world. Is the kingdom now a spiritual kingdom, or is the earthly kingdom then in the future? When will Jesus Christ be king? Turn to Matthew twenty-five thirty-one, and we read, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then, notice, when he shall come, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them from one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This passage tells us that the Son of Man will come in his glory and all the angels with him, and then he shall sit on the throne of his glory. Bear in mind, at no time in history has the Lord Jesus Christ yet come with all his holy angels. And at no time in history has the Lord Jesus Christ gathered all the nations before him and separated them into two groups. It is only when these conditions are fulfilled that Jesus Christ can be called king. When? When he is literally in the land of Israel, in Jerusalem, seated upon a physical throne, King David's throne. With the restored earthly kingdom, the last Adam, along with his regenerated and glorified wife, that's the bride of Christ, the church. Will he begin to exercise his rule over the literal realm of earth as King Messiah? Before that day, you must make a choice. You do this, first of all, by recognizing that you are a sinner. Romans 3.23 tells us, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And you need cleansing from your sins. Titus 3.5 says, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. We need to recognize that we cannot earn or work for our salvation. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. We have 
regeneration by simply believing in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for our salvation and by accepting him by faith alone. We accept that he died on a cross as the substitute for you, for me, to pay for the sins. And the shedding of his blood was to satisfy God's righteous judgment. Paul tells us, Ephesians 2, beginning verse 8, For by grace are ye saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, nothing we can do, baptism, church attendance, being better than the other man, or doing good things to people. Not of works, lest any man should boast. And then when we receive Christ, and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Notice they follow the belief in Christ which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We do that by receiving Jesus Christ as our Savior through simply praying that he would, that we accept his death on the cross, his payment for our sins, his substitutionary death, and that he rose from the dead three days later to show that he had conquered death for the wages of sin is death. He had conquered that by paying the price that you and I rightfully should have paid in hell. We do that by receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. John 1.12 says, To as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. If you've done this, then you can join me and countless others as we wait expectantly for our bridegroom to come for us for the marriage supper of the Lamb and then to return with him to rule and reign upon the earth. As John says, Even so come, Lord Jesus, our bridegroom. Now may the Lord bless you mightily, and we'll either see you here or in the air. Music